there's a lovely looking group right in the middle, untouched at the moment. Um, pioneers amongst you need to head there. Fantastic to see so many of you here this morning, um, particularly since you've had to have a second shower, perhaps, many of you are getting here. Uh, bold cyclists among you um, in particular. So welcome to Burning Man. Uh, my name's Pat Allerton. I'm involved in helping uh, lead things here um, at St. Mike's. And um, we're thrilled uh, to have you here uh, this morning to come and um, hear Michael Ramsden, um, who is a, a good friend of ours here at Burning Man. When we initiated uh, this ministry uh, three or four years ago, uh, Michael did, uh, I think it was two or three, Michael, two or three of our earliest um, gatherings. Uh, so he was a real uh, good friend of ours and uh, supporter of the ministry in the early days. So it's fantastic to have you back with us, Michael. For those of you who don't know Michael, a bit of an introduction. Michael is the International Director for Ravi Zacharias Ministries and has been part of the organization since its foundation in 1997. He's also Joint Director of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Um, before that, a bit of background, he was brought up in the Middle East and later moved to England where he worked for the Lord Chancellor's Department Investing Funds. So he knows what it's like for some of you out there. Um, and while doing research in law and economics at Sheffield University, he taught moral philosophy and lectured for the International Seminar for Jurisprudence and Human Rights um, in Strasbourg. So no big deal, really. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite stats or facts about Michael is that he uh, once shared the gospel uh, with the Taliban. But I'll let you quiz him on that uh, later. I don't have any further details. Uh, and in fact, you'd have to be shot if we shared them. Um, and the final piece of good news is he's going to tell us all how to vote today in the referendum. So uh, as he comes up to do so, would you give a warm welcome to Michael Ramsden? Uh, well, it's uh, a privilege to be with you. Um, I, uh, I'm going to be trying to stay as well clear from politics as I possibly can, although we're definitely going to be speaking about it in some kind of way. Um, and it's wonderful to see you, and thank you for braving the rain. Um, and for those of you who are planning to come by tube and found it flooded, even more congratulations for getting in. Um, here's what I'm going to try and do, because I'd love to be able to give time for questions, which I often find to be some of the most exciting and profitable time. But what I want to do is outline a few um, uh, sort of general thoughts for you, and then um, just have a brief look at uh, uh, one part of uh, Scripture, just to maybe throw some light on what I think is becoming an increasingly contentious and difficult world in which to live, speak, and live. And... Uh, and then really allow you to ask me questions, because uh, I often, I know I find myself that I learn so much through that. But where I want to start is this. Um, at the end of the last uh, general election, um, I was invited to go and speak in the uh, St. Mary's Undercroft, the little chapel there underneath the British Houses of Parliament, which if you don't know and have never been there, actually forms one of the foundation stones of the Parliament. So there's something incredibly symbolic about the fact that not very far from here, uh, you know, stands a building who's one, of, one of whom's in fact, foundational pillars is literally a church. And uh, it was a huge privilege to speak there. Not, a, not shortly after that, I was over in Asia, uh, in, in a country I'll leave unnamed, and I was asked to speak with the, the cabinet of that country that I was visiting to, and they asked me to address exactly the same question that I'd been asked to speak on um, literally the day after the election over here. And about eight weeks after that, I was invited to give an address to the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast in Australia. And once again, I was asked to address the same question. So when you're invited by different political groups, moving from east to west, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, and you're being asked exactly the same question, you 
It forces you to reflect and think, why is it that this particular issue at this particular time is so globally common? Now, on, those same, uh, on that same itinerary, I was also asked to meet with groups of business leaders, both east, west, north, south. Uh, one particular group, um, which meets quite quietly, who's quite concerned about where things are going globally, uh, control um, uh, both public and private capital to the tune of about 10 billion uh, 10 trillion US dollars, and that's a lot of money even if you're a televangelist. And um, interestingly enough, they also wanted me to address the same issue and address the same question. So whether it was business leaders or political leaders, they were raising the same fundamental question, and they were asking for some kind of insight in order to understand it. And the issue, the question, which they wanted to be dealt with was that of reconciliation. Is it actually possible to see and affect real reconciliation within any society or within a nation? Now, why is it that we find ourselves put under that, that kind of question, put in such a bright spotlight? Where is it coming from? Now, I think the question's been raised at multiple levels, and many of our sort of leading um, novelists around the world at the moment are also trying to wrestle with it in their writing. I don't know if you've read anything by Jonathan Franzen. Uh, he doesn't write uh, books at a very fast pace. They come out quite slowly. Uh, but his latest book was entitled Purity. Um, and uh, I don't want to ruin the whole thing for you, um, but I probably am with what I'm about to say. But the way that novel starts is the young heroine of that novel um, is sitting in a coffee shop and a young guy comes in, she gets talking to him, she likes him. And as she's talking to him, she then phrases the following question in her mind. Having, this is, remember, this is first point of contact. She says to herself, dare I risk the intimacy of friendship, or shall I retreat into the relative safety of casual sex? That's the question she puts to herself. Dare I risk the intimacy, and therefore the possibility of being hurt, betrayed, upset through friendship or will I just keep this at an arm's length transaction and just sleep with the guy at a personal level we're struggling with questions about the difference between what it means to be physically intimate with someone and enjoy relational intimacy and we no longer can define between them and there are an awful lot of hurt people as we've gone backwards and forwards over that now at the same time we're dealing with a whole set of economic questions and issues which I'm not going to go into great detail but one of the most uh, uh, influential and also controversial books, economic books of the last couple of years was written by a French guy called Piketty entitled Capital, uh, which is a book worth reading because it's so big and so thick that once, when you die, you can actually get buried in it. Um, but what Piketty says, um, and I say parts of it are very controversial, but the bit which I think is least controversial, which is part of his central thesis, is that the rate of return on capital has far outstripped the rate of return of income. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that if any of you sitting in this room have children in their 20s or 30s, or you are in your 20s and 30s, and you have an amazing job right now, your number one problem that you're thinking about, either for your children or for yourself, is will I ever be able to afford to buy my own home? The growth of a value of capital within the economy has far outstripped the rate of growth of income. And therefore, you have more and more people who feel financially excluded from the system which they were born into, and they see no hope of, getting in, of, of um, achieving it. So I even know from my own personal experience in Oxford, having bought a house there 20 years ago, the home I now live in today, which I brought 20 years ago, 
um, just uh, sort of you know, relatively young in life. If I was the most highly paid senior medical consultant at the John Radcliffe Research Hospital at Oxford, I would not be able to afford to buy the home I live in today. It's just simply out of reach. And so you also have this sense of economic alienation which is sweeping right across and has become an issue for political debate in all kinds of areas. And people are feel disillusioned with traditional responses they've been given, which is why one leading atheist who wrote recently in the Financial Times said all of our major politics right now is marked out not by right versus left, but by establishment versus anti-establishment, as people feel politicians will make increasingly unrealistic promises simply to guarantee your vote, and they're unable to deliver uh, what it is that they have promised, because they're promising too much. The kinds of things which they're promising to do with fulfillment, happiness, and all this kind of stuff, traditionally were the kinds of promises we felt only God himself was able to deliver into any given human heart or any given society. And therefore, by promising something which we cannot ultimately deliver, cynicism is always going to be the result. Now, at the same time, um, we've also seen a huge explosion, um, uh, which I would trace back to a, a confusion about the nature of the understanding of truth, um, which has manifested itself in a debate called safe spaces, or at other times, the culture of victimization. Now, I don't know how much of you, have any of you have been following this in the press, um, but let me just introduce this idea to you in the following way. I read the following in the Times, so obviously it must be true. Um, uh, but this would be typical of what's happening at the moment. Let me just read you the first um, few paragraphs of this. This is from a few weeks ago. A university student who raised her hand in a meeting was accused of violating safe space rules because the gesture could have intimidated others. Imogen Wilson, Vice President of Academic Affairs at the University of Edinburgh Students Association, was threatened with expulsion from a student council meeting after a safe space complaint was made against her. Ms. Wilson, 22, um, used inappropriate hand gestures by raising her arm. According to the association's rules, which are similar to those at other universities, meetings need to be in a space which is welcoming and safe. Rules prohibiting discriminatory language and actions compel students to refrain from hand gestures which denote disagreement. Ms. Wilson had raised her hand after being accused by another speaker of failing to respond to an open letter, despite having made efforts to contact its authors. A vote was taken on whether to reject her or not. And then this move was then later backed by the National Union of Students. As a matter of fact, if the economist is to be believed, in a recent poll of British university students, two-thirds of 18 to 29-year-olds back this, these safe space rules. So she was threatened with expulsion from a student's meeting because she raised her hand. If you read the rest of the article, what happened is she didn't want to write an open reply to the letter. She'd been trying to contact the author personally to see if she could talk to them first before publishing an open reply. So when she raised her hand to say this is what she wanted to do, that hand gesture denoted disagreement, therefore violated safe space, and therefore she should be ejected. Now, why? Why on earth have we got there? And the simple reason is we've completely forgotten as a society how to disagree without being disagreeable, which is why our new group of young uh, protesters are called the snowflake generation, because they're so fragile. You simply touch them and they go into complete meltdown. Now, this isn't helped by a political climate where our political leaders around the world seem completely intent to com totally talk past each other all of the time and therefore escalate disagreement into outright, outright conflict, which is why in polls right across Europe, even in, in, in Germany, it's not a huge number, it's only 21%, but 21% of 18 to 29-year-olds polled in Germany believe the government should ban the media reporting on large-scale protest against the government because it causes civil unrest. Now, what on earth is going on there? 
Now, it is partly because we've embraced a fault, totally faulty understanding of the idea of tolerance in our society. Now, if I were to stand before you and talk about tolerance, I would want to go in one of two rhetorical directions. The first one would either be to go back to the medieval doctrine as developed by the church and say tolerance as historically defined by the church is something I'm totally in favor of. But if we're talking about tolerance as defined by 21st century Westerners, then it's something which I actually think is one of the most foundational threats to free society in any part of the world. And let me try and explain why. Tolerance in the modern mind is a largely negative concept. Now, that's still even true through historical definition as well. So if you're an engineer, tolerance is the amount of error you can build into a system before it collapses. Tolerance in, in medicine is what you build against you know, some kind of you know, harmful drug or effect or whatever to allow you to fight it off. It means that if I were to stand before you today and at the end you were to come up and say, oh, Michael, I, I, I saw you talking to um, um, Nick Chance, Nicholas Chance earlier. Do you know him? And I say, yes, he's even fed me in his home. And you say, ooh, was the food any good? And I say, yes, it was tolerable. If he's standing behind me, he's not sitting thinking to himself, well, the next time Michael's in London, I'm definitely having him back. And you were then to say to me, well, they, they've invited me to stay overnight because I have an early start in London one day, and they said I can come and use their guest room. You know, uh, what's it like staying with them? And I say, well, their company is tolerable. I know very few people in this world who want to be tolerated. When I look at you, if I were to say I am prepared to tolerate you, what I mean by that is that there's something fundamentally wrong with you, but you're either too stupid or too arrogant to be able to acknowledge it. I, however, am kind, graceful, and merciful, which is why you can call me Michael the Merciful. And out of the abundance of my own character, I'm prepared to put up with you. When I claim tolerance, I'm normally claiming a virtue to my benefit at your expense. There is a fundamental difference between tolerance and respect. Because when I say I respect you, I'm now saying there's something about you which demands I treat you in a particular way. It says nothing about me. It says everything about you and who you are. Since we were created in God's image, we are commanded in Scripture to treat other people with respect. The fundamental issue, though, as far as this particular debate goes, is this, is that it is impossible under modern definition to tolerate someone and disagree with them. Because under modern definition, whenever you disagree with someone, you cease to become tolerant. You become intolerant of their position. However, you can respect someone and disagree with them, which is why respect is, in modern parlance, modern language, is the nearest word we have to the medieval doctrine as developed by the church of an understanding of what tolerance is. Because that's historically the, the, the meaning of what tolerance actually was. We no longer, we struggle with the definitions we have to find a way to live with the kinds of disagreements and the problems that we have. And therefore, we find talking incredibly difficult, which is why even in the current debate about should we leave or remain within the EU, countless people have appeared on the TV saying we shouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. Well, why, the reporters ask. Well, look at all the division it's causing. Better to stifle the debate and not have the discussion so as not to cause dissent. But that's simply because we no longer know how to disagree with each other anymore. And we're not sure what it is that may unite us or pull us together. And so we're struggling. And we can see it coming across. And the level of distrust that we see in the way that things are falling out is, is increasingly disturbing. Well, having 
made just some of these introductory points. Let me just make a few uh, biblical points. I don't want to throw this open for, for, uh, for, you, for you to question. Now, one of the reasons I feel very strongly about this particular issue and I wanted to share it was I was um, uh, attending the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast here in the UK a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of my colleagues from the Middle East came over uh, from Egypt to talk about what was happening in Egypt right now. And as he uh, talked about what he, what he saw uh, and what was actually happening in their country and how that country's also been ripped apart, one of his questions was, the only way we know how to disagree is through violence, so that's what tends to happen. All verbal disagreement is equated with the same as being physical disagreement, and therefore we respond appropriately, and we're falling apart. But here's the problem we have right now. Many of those countries are looking to the West, especially as they see it, the Christianized West, and they see exactly the same process happening here. Why not ban and expel the people who want to disagree? If raising your hand to disagree denotes disagreement and therefore violates safe space and is therefore to be understood as the same level as physical threat, a physical threat to violence, then of course you're going to stop it. But it makes all form of disagree, disagreement impossible, which is why right now, as so many parts of the world are disintegrating into disorder, as people look towards what they traditionally thought of as being stable political economies, they see the same principle in effect here that is over there. It's just slightly more extreme over there. What is it that we have to offer? How do we learn to disagree? So I want to just share a few thoughts for you out of the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 4. Now, I don't have time to go all the way through 1 Corinthians. I find it a fascinating uh, book. Um, but 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church which is in violent disagreement with itself. Now, he takes five major problems that the church faces. The first part of the book, from chapter 1 to about verse 4, 16, is to do actually with inner church division. And I don't have time to go through it now, but his message in 1 Corinthians 1 through to 1 Corinthians 4, 16 is you are divided, but it's Christ that unites us. And when you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow so-and-so, you're actually doing the gospel a huge disservice because it's not them that we're following. It is Christ. That is what unites us. Now, the reason I want to take the second section, however, in this particular setting is he then goes into a fairly contentious issue in Corinth, and it's to do with sex. Not that, of course, there's any disagreement about sexual ethics in our culture today. So he is writing to a church which finds itself in a huge amount of trouble. Now, there's an argument to be made that says 1 Corinthians is actually split up into five different sections. The first talks about cross and division. The last part talks about um, uh, resurrection. The next part talks about men and women. The, the second part talks about men and women in disagreement in their sexual and family life. And the fourth part talks about um, men and women in worship in the church. And the middle section is about how does a Christian engage with a pagan society. And you can see he, follow, he normally uses the same kind of pattern. And in the, the pattern he tends to follow in each section is he starts off with a personal appeal um, to them, and he tends to end with a personal appeal, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He then takes a, take, he then takes a particular problem, so it's not abstract, he takes a real-life problem in each case, and he says this is what's actually going on. Then having made his reference to tradition and his initial personal appeal. He then takes the problem. He then introduces the theology within which the problem can be solved. 
Then he returns to the problem, normally in a more positive aspect, and then he ends with a personal appeal again. So you have five sections, and each section normally breaks down into five, into five parts. It's an incredibly poetically, beautifully put together letter, um, which is why, for some people, when they've approached it, they thought this letter was actually very scattered, because he seems to be jumping all over the place. And the answer is no, it's not badly edited, he's not jumping all over the place, he's actually just following a set pattern all the way through. The reason he gives the theology before he comes back to solve the problem is to make everybody in the room think, which is one of the problems they have in Corinth. They think they're thinking well, and they actually think they're being very rational, but they're not. So he is addressing them in a way to make them stop and think. So, speaking to a divided church, which is at war against itself, in, in, verse, in chapter 1, around verse 10, it says, I, there are quarrels amongst you. The Greek word he uses is Ares, the goddess, of, the goddess of war. He literally says, the goddess of war has been released amongst you. It's a very powerful image, so don't think this is a mi- these are minor issues. He then moves, I say, into this part of sexual relations, and here's what he, first of all, he has to do. He makes his personal appeal and his a reference to a tradition where he's basically saying, look, um, I love you. You know how I live and what the pattern of life I have established is. I'm sending Timothy to remind you of it. That's part of his personal appeal and he's referencing the tradition. This is what I teach everywhere I go. And then he comes back and he says, I am going to come to you. And my question is, when I come to you, will I come lovingly or will I have to come strongly? And then he goes into the specific problem, which starts at verse five, uh, chapter 5. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put, on your fellow, and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present with you in spirit, I, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, you hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Now, and then we're going to just come back into that passage. But let's start where he actually starts. Paul is going to have to deal with a series of very difficult pastoral issues in Corinthians. Very hard. He starts off with a case. He's saying there is something that you are doing which you are celebrating. You're proud of it, and you should feel ashamed of it. Now, what is very interesting is that the other major reference we have of what is happening in Corinth in the Bible, a man and his son sleeping with the same woman, you actually find in Habakkuk in chapter 2, where in Habakkuk 2 it says, it is actually said, that men and a father and a son all go into the same woman. He says, you, you, and by so doing, you profane God's holy name. Now, I'm going to need a little visual aid here just to try to explain the significance of what's actually happening there. In Hebrew, if you take this word, I don't know if any of you can actually see that, that's the Hebrew word hal, with a soft H at the beginning. If you add you, ya, Yah at the end of it, you'll have hallelujah, praise his name. If you turn this into a hard H, if you, if the stroke of the pen closes the small gap from here to here, you have hallelujah, profane his name. So what's being said in Habakkuk is that your life and how you're living your life according to your sexual ethics, rather than it being a hallelujah before God, a praising of his holy name. It has become a hallelujah before God. It is a profaning 
of his holy name. Do you see the power of what Habakkuk is saying to his Hebrew readers? And Paul now picks up on a very specific instance and he writes to the Corinthian church and he says, you are celebrating and you are proud of something of which you should feel ashamed. Which is why he then goes then to speak in such strong terms. Your witness, he's saying, as Christians, rather than have been a praising of God's holy name and leading people to praise his name, is actually profaning his holy name. And you're getting yourselves into all kinds of trouble. So it's a very strong and a very direct plea. Now, what he goes on to do is utterly fascinating. I don't have time to go through all of it, but if you read from 1 Corinthians 5, 6, all the way down to 1 Corinthians 5, 8, for example, you will see in a few short sentences, Paul manages to reference the church, the cross, and holy communion. What he says is, um, do you not know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so you may be an unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you're familiar with formal church service, you'll know that when we celebrate communion, we tend to use a form of words similar to this. Let us celebrate the feast. Let us keep the feast for Christ was sacrificed for us. They are the words of institution we use for communion for good reason. It references communion, but it also references the cross, the sacrifice which Christ made. And it actually then later goes on to talk about the nature of communion itself. Now, if we read through the whole passage, what you'll actually see is Paul goes on to also reference the Trinity and the Incarnation. So Paul, in order to help them think through one particular issue, sexual ethics, has to paint for them a very big picture. And he says, you're living out of step sexually with what is commanded by God affects the communion, the cross, the church, the incarnation, and then he right towards the end he'll also reference the Trinity. Now the trouble is we live in an age where we constantly escalate our language all of the time to a level which is inappropriate. It was C.S. Lewis who said never use the word infinitely when you mean very because when you want to talk about something that's of true infinite importance you don't have any words left. In other words don't escalate the language beyond the means for the actual debate which you're having otherwise when something really important comes you've got nowhere left to go which is one of the huge problems we seem to have in our political world right now with everything turned up permanently to 10 there is no higher language that we can employ when something truly disastrous does actually occur so everything's at this put at the same level which actually doesn't have the effect of elevating everything it brings everything down paul as a writer to the church has a limited number of big buttons he can push big levers he can pull big bells that he can ring to say this is very important so when Paul writes and says this is affects your understanding of communion, of the church, of the trinity, of the cross, of the incarnation, it is huge. There aren't very many big things left for him to do. He is, in other words, taking a very specific issue and putting it into a much larger context. He's saying you need to have the means to discern when you've got something major going on and you need to go all out and that's what I'm doing for you right now. Versus for certainly minor things. So when he comes to talk about food sacrifice to idols, which some people had elevated all the way up to the top of the tree and were willing to divide over, there he actually he says some very interesting things which are very different to what he's saying here. This leaves no room for maneuver. But in a few chapters later when he's dealing with another specific problem, he's saying, look, you, you put this problem up here, but you need to think of it here. So let me put, and there's a lot more room to maneuver within this particular circle. 
and then he has to unpack it in a variety of different directions. Having made an appeal to them, as he moves through chapter 6, he's actually quite brilliant in what he, he says. He then has to justify why is it so important. And he touches on one last issue which we also struggle with, namely how to define freedom. So in 6.12, still going through all of this, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And now Paul is going to issue one last explanation. What he's going to say here is really, is really quite simple. There's a, there are two different words at play here in the Greek. One is sarx. Sarx means your physical body, your flesh. And the other is somos. Okay, the soma is the, is the body, but we also use it to talk about the body of church. It's, it's, it's different to the physical. Okay, it's more than that. Paul says you're making an analogy between the things you think you need. You say we need food, we eat food, it goes into the stomach, it really doesn't matter. And then you say, and we need sex because we need intimacy, and that was also made for us, and it really, it's the same thing. And Paul's saying, no, it is not the same thing. He says, your argument is wrong. Food goes into the sarks, into your flesh, and it can make your tummy big, and it can make you, you know, slow, bloated, and all kinds of other kinds of stuff. You may even develop stomach ulcers. But the good news is, because he's, he's about to go and talk about the resurrection, on the day of resurrection, he will say, the sarks doesn't go with you. So when you get to heaven, the stomach ulcers, the, the, the excess weight, everything else, that gets left behind, okay, and you will now have a new type of body. The soma, however, he says, will be raised. And how we live sexually affects our body, our soma. So, he begins to link now to help them understand the significance of this. The reason why Paul is going to give them a lot more options about food sacrifice to idols later on in Corinthians is he's saying, look, ultimately that's to do with the sarks. But there are other considerations that should determine whether you eat food sacrifice to idols. If it's going to cause other people to stumble, don't do it. If you eat it inadvertently, don't worry about it. It's not going to affect you. Okay? And if you know that everything's being made clean, go ahead and willfully eat it. But it's not to do with the food anymore. Can you see that? It's not to do with the food. It's not to do with the stomach. It's to do with a totally different principle about how you relate to other people. That's the basis on which you decide that ethical issue, he says. But when it comes to this one, this is different. This is actually important. It actually affects the body. How do we learn to disagree? How do we model disagreement in a society which has forgotten how to do it? First of all, you need someone who can help put it in its proper context. How significant is this? Are there a range of options over which we can legitimately disagree and wish each other well, even though we may go in very different directions? Or are there some things which are so foundational and affect us at such a basic level that there is actually no room for maneuver? How do we deal with... How does Paul, having talked about the necessity to have truth and love united together in chapter 1, and then has the most amazing chapter on verse 13 to talk about truth, how can he rebuke them? 
And the answer is, is that love and truth aren't two mutually exclusive categories, as if somehow they fought against each other, which is why I hate the Christian expression, I'm going to tell you the following truth and love, because whenever I hear that, I can guarantee two things. First of all, it's never said in a loving way, and secondly, it's not normally even truthful. It's about me saying to you, I'm going to speak to you in a very interesting manner. I mean, I don't have to point that out. Either it's boring or it's interesting, but I don't need to tell you what the intent actually is. You can tell from the manner in which I've spoken to you. So you don't need to flag that up up front. But Paul understands something very important, that, that truth and love can actually come together. You can have compassion and conviction. Compassion and conviction are not two mutually exclusive categories. And if any, you meet anyone who thinks that they can live with truth, with love in the absence of truth, all you need to ask them is, is does it matter when someone tells you I love you while they're t- telling the truth and have you ever been betrayed? Anyone who has suffered serious betrayal knows that declaration of, truth in the absence, uh, declaration of love in the absence of truth is largely meaningless. It may actually be long-term be very painful. And so Paul is now learning to say something very, very hard to them. But then notice how he also treats them as adults. We, we glanced over it. We didn't have time to unpack it. He, sa- he says to them, you have written to me about various problems earlier at the beginning of this letter, including this one. You want me to tell you what to do. But then did you catch what he said? You may have missed it. He says, I've already passed judgment on this. I know what the right thing to do is. But you need to pass judgment on this. You, as the local group of people, you need to sit down, you need to figure this out, and you need to make a judgment. Now, he's, it's almost funny. In the first section of this letter, Paul writes to the Corinthians and at one point says to them, you're so wise, you're reigning without us, you're ruling like kings, spiritual kings over the universe, because you know things that we don't know. You're so much wiser and better and cleverer than we are. So he rather sarcastically says that in part part one. In this second part, the rhetoric he's later going to employ is, is no one wise amongst you? Can no one make a judgment? Is there no one amongst you who's able to make any form of decision? And he reverses it, do you see? So having told them, gosh, you all think you're so clever and you're clearly reigning without us, you don't need any advice from us because you already know everything. When he comes here, he says, really, is no one wise enough to make a simple judgment on a case like this? He doesn't try to simply impose from on high what he thinks he should do. He says, if you want to pass the buck to me and get me to pass judgment on this on your behalf... You need to know that when I come to you, I will speak that way. But you need to make your own judgment. You need to make sure it's right. And you need to implement it. In other words, you need to own it. I think one of the hardest things I've noticed in the business world is how in one setting someone's prepared to say one thing and in another setting do something and say something completely different. I'm sure you've not had the kind of disappointments that I've seen. I'm sure that has never, ever happened to you. It is incredible the number of times we often rush in as leaders to sort out a problem on behalf of other people because they tell us they're not brave enough to speak. Only when you, after you've spoken on their behalf for them to step into the same room and say more or less the exact opposite of what they said to you in the first place in order to get you to go into the room. As I say, I'm sure it's never ever happened to you. I have a feeling it may have happened to Paul. I've experienced it too, and he simply won't be drawn into it. We have to find a way to recover as a society what it means to respect people, whereby we can disagree with their ideas, however strongly, and yet still learn to love them as people. We need to find a way to model it as a church so that people can see how it's lived out. And we need to recover our public voice and not be scared 
of speaking into these controversial issues. Otherwise, we're going to lose the right to speak in and of itself. One last thing, and then we'll have some Q&A. I've phrased this to you in a very Christian way, um, but you need to understand that a lot of this debate that's happening around us right now has got nothing to do with, the Christian, with Christianity in particular whatsoever. And I'll give you one last example. I don't know how many of you know who Peter Tatchell is, um, uh, but I'm assuming that if you've read a newspaper in the last 30 years, you may have come across his name. You may or may not be aware um, that not very long ago, uh, Peter Tatchell was denounced for being homophobic. Now, how is that possible? Well, um, it's really quite simple. Uh, Peter Tatchell, who's been campaigning for gay rights and you know, gay marriage for an awfully long period of time, came to the defense of a lady called Jermaine Greer. Jermaine Greer, uh, a well-known feminist author, had made comments along the lines of, and I'll try and put it as sensitively as I can, although she was a bit more blunt with her own language, if you cut off a gentleman's bits, it doesn't make him a woman. It just makes him a gentleman without those bits. Um, as I said, it was slightly blunter than that. And as a result of that, she was no platform for speaking at Cardiff University. She wasn't allowed to speak because she was transphobic. So Peter Tatchell spoke up in her defense and said, you shouldn't know platform people like Jermaine Greer. You shouldn't even know platform people who want to speak against gay marriage because we live in a free society and that's very important. And because he said that, the only narrative to understand by what he said is, well, you hate us, therefore, so you must be homophobic too because the person who made the decision was gay. So by disagreeing with the person who is gay means you must be homophobic. I've only ever met Peter Tatchell once. It was about just over a decade ago. And anyone who can come to the conclusion that he's homophobic has frankly lost it in a very serious way. Some of these issues are so vitally important because we're in danger of losing not only the capacity to speak, but when you can no longer speak and debate, you are very often beginning to lose the capacity to think. And if I can end on this note, even just looking at some of the rhetoric we've seen in the last week, it simply goes to reinforce one of my own favorite pet theories, that the total amount of intelligence in the world is fixed, but the population has been steadily growing. Uh, we need to see something different. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Um, I'm happy to take a few questions if you would like to ask any. Yeah, now so this, is, this is why the idea of the bodily resurrection. So the question was, thinking about the, the, the theology of the resurrection, what we don't tend to have, especially in Protestant circles, is a very high-developed theology of the body. What do we mean when we talk about the body? Now, that passage can be a little bit confusing because Paul talks about two different types of bodies. Our body, in terms of our physical body, the body, the church, and then also our body, but different between the soma and the sarx. So he's using it in two different ways. The physical, what Paul is saying is that the soma, which is physical, but more than, more than that, more than just the flesh, more than just the stomach, the sarks, will be raised on the last day. And what the most important thing he's saying is that what you do sexually affects your soma and will affect the resurrection. Now, that's why we wish he said a little bit more. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it very clear that for anyone who repents, you can be absolutely happy, have an absolute certainty on the day of resurrection. In other words, no one's without hope. But the reason why they're in trouble in 1 Corinthians 5 is that they're proud and they're not repentant. So actually, they are going to have a problem on the day of resurrection. So when it comes to Jesus Christ, the physical resurrection of the soma is actually very important. Okay, rather than just a spiritual resurrection, in the sense you know, he rose by, in the spirit only, 
but the body actually still was there in some means. No, no, the physical retroness is important. There is a physical Christ who came into this world and a physical Christ in eternity who still bears the marks of the cross. So, yeah, it speaks to that too, which is why Paul is later going to put so much emphasis on the resurrection when he also, in, a, in another time when he writes to the Corinthians. It's not an optional not an optional part of their belief as far as he's, you know, as far as he's concerned. It's a good question. Yes, Jonathan. Could you, in this matter of how we disagree, say something about courtesy? <laughs> yes. Um, it's on my mind because last night in a church, two minutes walk from here, there was a wonderful lecture given by President Supreme Court, Lord Newberger. I think the title was Courtesy, the Gift of God's Grace. Mm. And in one part of this lecture, Lord Newberger suggested that the antithesis of courtesy was rudeness. Mm. And that's not a contest. Christians, for example, should be courteous and should not be rude. Yes. However, in the 21st century, it's become more complicated. Mm. Uh, and perhaps now the challenge is, uh, should I be courteous or should I be robust? Yes. Now, take just the little issue of television interviewing. Um, there was a time when uh, television interviewers used to say things like, Prime Minister, anything more you would like to say at the end of this interview? Yes. Uh, and there were certainly times when a great interviewer, perhaps the greatest ever, uh, John Freeman, yes. used to be lethal by being elaborately courteous. <laughs> but now in the age of the soundbite, uh, television and other interviewers go in, they only have to think of Jeremy Paxman and yes. <coughs> others, uh, go in as robustly yes. as, as possible. Um, and you had to listen to John Humphreys uh, interviewing the Prime Minister on the Today program yesterday. The Prime Minister obviously thought, uh, as he complained about being interrupted at least three times, that uh, the robustness was getting too fierce. Mm. And this is a dilemma. Uh, yeah. Are we being weak when mm. we're being courteous? Mm. Are we being rude when yeah. we're being yeah. robust? And I, and I think part of what I think Paul modeled so well was, as I say, you, because we have concluded as a society that compassion and conviction are two totally different categories, that they cannot coexist, and you have to choose one, you will therefore have people who will just nod and smile to everybody they meet and disagree with whatever is said and never disagree because they're such a wonderfully tolerant person. Classically, we would have called that person mindless or spineless, but one of the two. Either they don't know what to think or they're, una or they're unwilling to articulate it. Um, so, but the, uh, the, the fact that truth and love need to actually run together, which forms what courtesy can do so beautifully, um, the fact that we've lost that means that we are, we are hopelessly disorientated. So, um, there's one other thing I didn't touch on in, in the talk, which is we also have something which is now called the culture of victimization or the culture of victimhood, which is a very rich term, and if you were to search it, especially in academic journals, you'll see now leading universities around the world talking about it everywhere. But the basic narrative of the culture of victimization goes like this. I am a victim. I deserve special treatment, and I'm exempt from everything else. You, however, are in the majority. Everything I say and every comment I make about this issue is motivated by love. Everything that you say is motivated by hate. So whenever you disagree with me, therefore you hate me, which is why it fits into this whole safe space debate very neatly. So coming back to this whole courtesy, um, 
thing. If the interviewer feels that they're standing up on behalf of all the victims out there, all the people who've been put down and so on, everything they say, no matter how it's said, is clearly motivated by love. And everything which you say in defense of it is clearly motivated by hate. And so we're already escalating the interaction before we, before we start. And there is very little, no attempt made to win the audience. Now, one of the benefits, if I can, this is probably not the right word to use, one of the consequences of the church in Europe being humbled and weakened in terms of its stature means it's had to learn that it can't resort to power to get its way. It has to resort to persuasion. And persuasion is more than just articulation of argument. It's also how we live. It's how we express ourselves. It's how we engage. It's the manner with which we come. And coming in strong-handed, if you don't actually have a strong hand, isn't going to work because you don't actually have any power to exercise or nothing to back up the threat which you're making. It's empty, so you get dismissed. So the church has been forced, maybe even against a will at times within Europe, to come at a very different way, and I'm very grateful for that. It's much more, it's very biblical to express godly truth in a godly manner. So I think we have to recover this idea of courtesy, but courtesy, as we know, is a, always works best when it's going both ways. So I think when we remain courteous and kind, even in the face of unmerited aggression, Although we may not necessarily win the aggressive person, we may actually win the audience around us. And I think so often we've forgotten who we're actually so often talking to. It's the people standing in the room watching very carefully what we're saying. And when we shut all of those out and simply ignore them, all people see is something which is actually quite ugly by comparison. The way Corinthians opens is Paul writes to the Corinthian church and gives them greetings on behalf of himself and a guy called Sosthenes. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It's in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon preached on Sosthenes. So I don't know if you know who he is. But Paul, when he went to Corinth and preached in Corinth, upset a lot of people. And the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth and his family were converted under Paul's preaching. So the synagogue elected a new leader called Sosthenes. And Sosthenes brought a legal case against the apostle Paul to shut him up. And it went to a guy called Gallio. Now, Gallio was one of the most powerful judges of the ancient Roman world. Okay, he was a tutor to a guy called Seneca, a well-known Roman orator. And his, uh, sorry, um, uh, and his uh, uh, brother was connected through to the emperor. So this guy had powerful political connections. And he had one of the most prestigious and high-profile judging seats in the ancient Roman Empire. And Gallio throws the case out. He throws the case out and he says, I'm not going to listen to this. I have no interest in it whatsoever. Okay, so it never even gets a hearing. And at this point, the people are so angry with Sosthenes, they can't beat up Paul. He's a Roman citizen. So if they beat him up, Gallio will have them arrested and they're going to go to jail. So they turn on Sosthenes and they beat him to a pulp. Now, you might think that's an awful lot of information to get out of 1 Corinthians verse 1. Where do you know all of that? And the answer is, well, it's all written in Acts chapter 18. If you read the first half of Acts chapter 18, it'll tell you that story. It's all there in black and white. The question which we then ask ourselves is, what happened after then? And we're not sure. But here's what I think happened. Once the crowd left Sosthenes, unconscious of the steps in front of and Gallio, it's clear, he has no concern whatsoever. He doesn't care about the Jews beating up their own people. He just goes back inside. I think after that happened, Paul goes over to Sosthenes and extends a hand of friendship. Picks him up off the floor, cares for him, and leads him to the Lord. His sworn enemy, 
who was using all of the political and legal power he could possibly bring against Paul, Paul, in victory, is so gracious, he wins Sosthenes over. And now Sosthenes joins Paul. And it would make sense that when Paul writes to Corinthians about how hopelessly divided they are, he starts off by saying, I send you greetings. And do you remember Sosthenes? The guy who tried to legally shut you down, bring all that political force against you, the one who came to Christ, he sends greetings to you too. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and yours. The reason why I think Paul references Sosthenes right at the beginning of his letter to Corinth is to remind them what can be done through an exercise of grace extended even to your enemies to win them over to yourself. And I think that's where the forgotten art of courtesy, if you think, has, has gone, where people come to understand, no, we're not disagreeing with you because we hate you. We're not disagreeing with you because we're fearful of you. We're disagreeing at an important level because we think this is actually important. We'd like to explain why it's important, but we actually love you. And the love should be made manifest in the manner by which we actually treat other people. And we've, again, we've lost that, that model. Um, it's interesting, if I want to be very controversial, I'd phrase it like this. I know for me, at least personally, 20 years ago, if you asked me who were the statesmen of the world, there were various people in my mind's eye who, although they may have had difficult pasts and failed in various kinds of ways, you thought of as being statespeople. Men and women you held in very high esteem and regard because of the quality of their life. Who were the statesmen of today? Who are the uniting figures on the global stage who've so conducted themselves with courtesy and grace, even towards those who come against them, that we see them as somehow rising above the normal day-to-day? Who are those people? I find it much harder to come up with a list of names. We're in desperate need of a type of leadership that models statesman's type leadership today. It's a huge need. Michael, um, yeah. We need uh, to wrap a few up. more minutes. Um, speak about, raise the question of tolerance this morning. Interesting, the Jermaine Greer um, element being no platformed um, at Cardiff University for her views. Um, and Peter Tatchell even being called homophobic, for instance. Um, given that sort of climate, where do you see the culture now with regards to the culture? tolerating or not the church and Christian views, perhaps orthodox Christian views with regards to issues such as human sexuality, gender identity. Where do you see the culture now with regards to tolerating that? And how do you see the next 10, 20 years? Yeah. Well, we have a huge problem. If two-thirds of British university students right now think that people should be no-platformed if they want to express an opinion that may cause offense to someone else, and you want to live in a democracy, and assuming that universities will produce the majority of leaders in our country, business, political, legal, and so on, that unless there's a change of heart and mind, in about one and a half generations' time from now, we're actually going to be looking at a very different type of Europe. In other words, the freedom which we take for granted, which I would argue in Western civilization is an outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is going to be lost in the absence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That has massive ramifications. 
if the if it's also correct now but here's where we're in contradiction in that same survey 49% of university students said people should be barred from saying anything which offends someone's religious convictions now those two things aren't quite compatible I don't particularly enjoy reading Richard Dawkins' attacks on the Christian faith, but the last thing I want to do is go around banning his books. What we should do is read his books, think about what he's saying, and try and engage the guy in a, in a debate even if he doesn't want to have one. Um, the only way it seems to me that we can ever co- uh, deal with disagreement is you either sit down with someone over a cup of tea and talk with them about it, or you simply take up arms and you go to war over it. And my body was built for eating rather than fighting, so I'm a huge advocate for model number one. Paul, in Corinthians, has to point to the consequences of what they're saying. Does that make sense? What he says is the way he rescues the significance of the debate isn't by going back to talk about sexual ethics per se. He says, look, the significance of this and the effect of it is this, and that's why it's so important. We need to find a way to explain the significance, the why, of what is going on, rather than just simply the what and the how. And people are struggling right now to grasp that why so we're losing the foundations within Europe and we don't have to go very back far in European history to see all kinds of tyranny being enforced in a so called very civilized continent that's part of our history but much of that has been forgotten today, most people feel there's absolutely no need for it Um, so uh, the trouble is is you can never draw straight lines in history because it doesn't look like that. So yes, if you were to take the current trajectory and you took your ruler and you, you drew it down, you would say, well, we're destined to lose all forms of freedom of dissent, expression, and so on down here. Someone has to decide what causes offense or what may be more offensive than something else. And the government will be asked to enforce it. And anyone who wants to express dissent is in trouble. Uh, I can remember speaking in Albania and... Um, uh, in the year 2000, uh, in the more, more um, uh, in the huge uh, sort of funeral building that was built for the dictator of that country, which is sort of like a pyramid with the top cut off of it, uh, and there we are in this building where this guy had brutally suppressed all forms of dissent. As a matter of fact, if you had a beard, you went to jail. Beards weren't allowed. And I can remember speaking there, and a professor for English literature came up to me and said, "You know, I was so surprised when." when the dictatorship ended and I went, could go to the West and he bought some of Shakespeare's plays and realized that all the Shakespeare he'd studied had the word God removed from it. So all religious reference was removed from Shakespeare. He says, and suddenly some things made sense because it's very hard to remove all religious reference from Shakespeare or classical literature. So a lot of things were just left hanging in the air and you'll be reading it thinking, why do people think this is so good? It's, it's not very good at all. It wasn't until he finally got to read the unedited version. I was like, oh, well, that makes so much more sense. However, we, we don't, I say, you just don't see those straight lines in history. They tend to bounce around all over the place. Um, so I'm an evangelist. So here's my preferred narrative. Everyone finally gets down on their knees. We start crying out for God to do something. And there's this huge turnaround in this nation and in Europe. And we see a sort of a form of, you know, spiritual and cultural renaissance. And that's my preferred ending to the story. Just one last thing, and then I know I need to let you go because we are running slightly over time. When it comes to reaching um, business people, we, we have become very cynical about whether it's actually possible to do. 
Um, a colleague of mine by, uh, called Oz Guinness was down in the London last week speaking at a, at a meeting here, and he told me he met someone who was at a meeting in a big accountancy firm which I spoke at in London uh, about 18 months ago. Uh, there weren't very, member, very members of the Christian Union in that firm. It was quite small, but they had about two, 300 people roll up uh, for this particular meeting. I was speaking on the issue of why does integrity matter in business, and the way we ended the talk was talking about what do you do when integrity fails, which is the question most people don't answer. And my response to that was when integrity fails, you need to, have, you need to be able to answer three questions. Is there anyone to talk to? Is there any process of redemption involved? And is there any hope for me? And if you can't answer those three questions, is there anyone to talk to? Is there any process of redemption? Is there any hope? If you can't answer those three questions, you'll simply bury your failure. And that burial failure can destroy companies, it can destroy families, it can destroy whole countries at times. Interestingly, um, I said, Michael, there were some people there, he said, I met one of them who was there at that talk, the, the global head of compliance actually for that firm was there at the talk and he came up at the end and he says, can we send a video recording of this talk to all 147,500 employees in the firm? And I said, what, with Bible references and all the stuff about Jesus? He said, well, we spent several million dollars so far around the world flying people in to come and speak about integrity and this was the most interesting talk we've had so far. He said, so yeah, we'd like to send it out. I said, well, that's fine. And Oz was just showing how well that this guy's now doing with the Lord and how he's grown and he was there and Oz had assumed he'd been a Christian for decades from the way he was acting and speaking. He said it was only when he asked him the question, so what happened? He said, oh, well, 18 months ago I was at this meeting, you know, and then this happened and then this happened and now I'm with this group and, you know, this is what I'm now doing in my, my walk with Christ. So he was a relatively new believer. The one last piece that we need to recover as a church in all of this is a sense of hope. God can actually do something and he can actually change people's lives and he's changed many of your lives here in this room. That's what he specializes in. And we worship a God who resurrects the dead. So if our culture is dying or has died already, you know, we worship a God and that's his speciality. He brings that back from the dead. He can easily do it, but we have to turn to him and we have to ask him. Well, you've all been more than gracious with your time. Um, I know this has all come out as a bit of a torrent, and uh, we've covered an awful lot of ground in a short period of uh, short, uh, whatever it is, 50 minutes or so. I hope it's been worthwhile. I hope if you're going to work that you won't get too wet outside. I'm now going back to sunny Oxford, which is why I came here without a coat. I left first thing in the morning. The sun was up. It was, it was beautiful, happy, glorious, idealistic, idealistic. And the nearer and nearer I got to London, the wetter and the greyer and the more miserable it became. Let's hope there's nothing prophetic in that. Anyway, thank you very much, and it's lovely to have you uh, here this morning.